This week, Fieldwood Energy files for Chapter 11, Neiman Judge orders unsealing of documents, ENP management teams relieved second quarter wasn't worse. And as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later, you'll hear a special replay of our recent webinar on the airline industry's liquidity options. It's Sunday, August 9th. Fieldwood Energy, a Houston-based offshore ENP with $1.7 billion in net debt and assets in both the deep and shallow waters of the Gulf of Mexico, filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas. The company, which previously filed for and emerged from bankruptcy in early 2018, has entered into a restructuring support agreement dated August 3rd, with first lien term loan lenders holding over 67% of the debtor's FLTL secured debt, and second lien term loan lenders holding approximately 26% of the company's SLTL secured debt. The first lien first out lenders are not currently a party to the RSA, but discussions with them are ongoing, according to the first day declaration. The debtors have an agreement with Apache Corp., the predecessor in interest of the majority of their Gulf Shelf assets. Quote, Given that the plugging and abandonment and decommissioning obligations related to the legacy Apache properties are among the company's most significant liabilities, the terms set forth under the Apache term sheet form the cornerstone of a comprehensive restructuring plan, according to the first day declaration. The parties to the RSA have agreed to the separation of the debtor's assets into multiple entities, with Deepwater and certain other assets to be transferred to one or more purchasers or a new entity, and the legacy Apache properties to be owned by a separate entity. Members of the ad hoc FLTL group are providing the debtors with a $100 million DIP facility. The debtors solicited offers for DIP financing from seven parties and received two proposals, one from the pre-petition FLTL lenders and the other from the pre-petition FLFO lenders. The DIP motion explains that even though the FLFO proposal offered a lower interest rate and fees, the FLFO proposal carried with it a requirement for a substantial roll-up and, quote, significant execution risk, since it would likely require the debtors to seek approval of a DIP facility that would prime the FLTL lender's pre-petition liens on a non-consensual basis. The company attributes the bankruptcy filing to, quote, a challenging commodity price environment that has constrained its liquidity and affected operations, along with the, quote, combined effect of the COVID-19 pandemic. On Wednesday, Judge Jones filed an order on the Neiman Marcus Chapter 11 docket requiring the unsealing of certain documents, including an August 2nd letter from counsel for the UCC of the U.S. trustee, identifying concerns about certain actions by Dan Kaminsky, principal of Marble Ridge, and the funds representative on the UCC before Marble Ridge resigned from the UCC on August 1st. Judge Jones said in the order that after, quote, carefully studying the contents of the letter over the past 48 hours, he, quote, finds the described actions to be alarming. In the August 2nd letter to the USD, Richard Pachulski of Pachulski Stang, counsel to the UCC, recounted certain negotiations that transpired with respect to a potential cash-out option for unsecured creditors such that they could either retain their pro-rata share of the My Teresa Series B shares under the debtor's plan or receive a cash payment funded by Marble Ridge. The letter explains that Marble Ridge initially offered a cash-out option of $0.20 cents per Series B share, but that the UCC's financial advisor, Mohsen Megji of M3 Partners, received an email from Jeffries inquiring about Jeffries, quote, providing an unsolicited bid in the range of $0.30 cents per Series B share.
However, even though Meiji and Pachowski had concluded that they, quote, should have an immediate call with Jeffries to discuss their higher cash-out option proposal, Jeffries shortly thereafter said it would not be providing a proposal or a cash-out offer because of a, quote, significant client of Jeffries, who subsequently was revealed to be Kaminsky of Marble Ridge, had insisted that Jeffries stand down. The letter states that Eric Geller from Jeffries confirmed the client to be Marble Ridge. In an August 1st now unsealed declaration, Ed Weisfelner of Brown Radnick, Marble Ridge's counsel, stated that Jeffries has now indicated its intention to make a firm bid to purchase the units. The filing adds that on August 3rd, Marble Ridge, quote, submitted a revised proposal to the committee that, if accepted, would provide significant value to the non-funded debt creditors and could result in a global comprehensive consensual plan. Judge Jones's order directs the USG to file a statement within 14 days of its position concerning the conduct of Marble Ridge and Kaminsky in the Chapter 11 cases. The order provides that the UST's investigation should include all of Marble Ridge's and Kamensky's conduct since appointment to the UCC and directs that the UCC's professionals provide the UST with all the information in their possessions concerning this matter. The court indicates that it will schedule a further hearing to determine, quote, what action, if any, should be taken after it has an opportunity to review the UST's statement. In a statement to Reorg on Wednesday, Marble Ridge said it, quote, regrets that a misunderstanding with Jeffries occurred related to its potential interest in the Neiman bankruptcy. That misunderstanding is explained from Marble Ridge's perspective in its papers filed with the court. Marble Ridge fully supports a transparent process available to any party that will maximize value to the estate. After a second quarter that Comstock Resources CEO Jay Allison described as, quote, one of the most difficult 90 days in the history of the energy industry, and that witnessed Chapter 11 filings from shale pioneer Chesapeake Resources and a host of smaller names, earnings reports and conference calls from ENP names were notable for cautious sighs of relief that conditions had not become worse. Although the quarter's wild ride, to quote Simerex CEO Tom Jordan, had seen West Texas Intermediate trade negative for the first time in history as a deluge of supply threatened to overwhelm available storage capacity at Cushing and along the Gulf Coasts of Texas and Louisiana, the commodity has since recovered to the $40 level. As a result, both Simerex and Parsley Energy have reset their budgets to assume a $35 WTI price. Across the board, ENPs highlighted operational improvements and promised a laser-like focus on controlling costs and matching capex with commodity prices. Companies also said that curtailments and shut-ins had, for the most part, been reversed, with each discussing a return of drill rigs and frack crews to the field in the third and fourth quarters. Both Comstock and Gulfport Resources, natural gas-weighted companies, said that the completions and turn to sales would be timed for the winter when prices would be stronger. SM Energy, for its part, said it would slightly boost CapEx, focusing on completions and growth in oil-weighted production, with a leverage goal of 2x by 2022, assuming a recovery in oil to the $50 level. The operator also noted its operational success, with well costs per lateral foot in the Permian falling to $560 per lateral foot from $600 in April. Laredo Petroleum similarly increased its CapEx guidance to a range of $340 to $350 million from previous guidance of $260 to $295 million. Nevertheless, clouds remain on the horizon for some ENPs. Gulfport Energy, which declined to take questions on its call, issued a going concern warning. So did Oasis Petroleum, whose revenue fell 57% sequentially in the quarter, 
and whose borrowing base was reduced effective July 1st. On Monday, PREPA Governing Board President Ralph Creel announced that PREPA Executive Director Jose Ortiz has resigned, effective Wednesday, August 5th. Governor Wanda Vasquez indicated during a press conference that the resignation came a day after she met with Creel and expressed, quote, great concern over PREPA's response to last week's tropical disturbance and asked the government board to analyze the performance of PREPA management and to make the appropriate determinations. Ortiz explained the resignation by saying that when he accepted the position, he only committed to serve for two years. During a public meeting Tuesday, the Promisa Oversight Board rejected the Commonwealth Government's proposed audited financial statement timeline as too slow and directed the Puerto Rico Treasury Department and the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority to submit within 15 days a revised plan incorporating Oversight Board recommendations. The Oversight Board proposed the following deadlines. The Fiscal 2017 Comprehensive Annual Financial Report by August 31st, the Fiscal 2018 CAFR by November 30th, and the Fiscal 2019 CAFR by December 31st. Also during the meeting, Oversight Board member Jose Ramon Gonzalez announced that he is stepping down, effective August 31st, the third Oversight Board member to announce his resignation. Gonzalez said the Oversight Board was not able to accomplish as much as expected, citing the failure of the Commonwealth to produce timely audited financial statements as a, quote, major unachieved objective. He said the biggest obstacle has been the failure of the Commonwealth admissions to engage in a collaborative rather than, quote, contentious and adversarial process with the Oversight Board. He also cited a lack of, quote, managerial capability within the Commonwealth government. In a Monday opinion and order in the Pina Martinez versus U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Equal Protection case, Judge William G. Young held that denying needy U.S. citizens equal access to the three federal safety net programs simply because they reside in Puerto Rico is unconstitutional. The programs are the Supplemental Security Income, or SSI, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, also known as Food Stamps, and the Medicare Part D Low Income Subsidy Program, or LIS. Judge Young's opinion cited a 2014 U.S. Government Accountability Office study which estimated that granting the same benefits to island residents as stateside residents under these programs would provide some $4 billion in additional benefits. Other top stories this past week were... Tailored Brands files for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas. Mallinckrodt acknowledges possibility of Chapter 11 by Mallinckrodt PLC and most of its subsidiaries in the near term. And GTT Communications seeks amendment to credit agreement, asks public side lenders to go private. And now, as always, here's Jim from Houston with a week ahead. Thank you, Raksha. Hello, everyone. You know, there was once a time when August, especially the last couple of weeks, was considered the time when you could throw the Nerf football around the trading floor and maybe play solitaire on your Windows 95 machine. Alas, those days are long gone. If you don't believe me, well, here's some proof for you. Monday, August 10th, there's a confirmation hearing in Whiting and Ultra. I'm sure them boys want to get back d and c a status conference in J.C. JCPenney. And yes, there's earnings because the ride never ends, and this 
this week. It's from Royal Caribbean, Unity Group, and Occidental Petroleum, among others. Tuesday, August 11th, bidding procedure hearing in Braden Stratton, a name dear to anyone who's ever mowed a yard or taken apart an engine. Hearings in Dean Foods and Cirque du Soleil, earnings from Excella and Washington Prime. Wednesday, August 12th, sidecar cash collateral hearing in Hertz. That sounds like a mixed drink, don't it? And there's also hearings in Chesapeake and earnings from Advanza. Thursday, August 13th, omnibus hearing in Fairway. I believe that's a New York grocery chain and Alta Mesa, interestingly enough. Also, Frontier Communications. And there's earnings from Cengage, Algico, and WeWork. Friday, August 14th, cash collateral hearing in California Resources. Status conference in Highland Capital. A motion to compel hearing in Diamond Offshore. And an omnibus hearing in Extraction Oil and Gas. Plus, Valaris, the rig contractor once known as Insco, reaches the end of a forbearance and has a maturity of around 120, 122 million, excuse me, due on some pride notes the following day, which would be August 15th. And that's all. Please see the weekly forward if you want more. And now I'm going to turn it over to some of my colleagues who are going to tell you all about the airlines. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us on today's installment of the Reorg webinar series. Today, we'll take a closer look at the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic on the airline sector, in particular, major U.S. carriers. I'm Sean Daly, Distressed Debt Legal Analyst for America's Core Credit by Reorg, and joining me on today's webinar are America's Core Credit Distressed Debt Legal Analyst, Kevin Eckhart, Distressed Debt Analyst, Krishan Sutharshana, and Head of Covenants, Peter Washkowitz. Please note that if you'd like to revisit this webinar later, a replay of today's discussion will be available on the Reorg Media page within 24 hours. Today we'll start with an overview of the current state of the airline industry, move through recent operating trends and cash burn, then discuss outstanding debt, uh, particularly how capital structures have changed in the wake of coronavirus, uh, before ending with some general legal considerations and bankruptcy issue spotting. So with that, just uh, to start a quick industry overview, it uh, goes without saying that the coronavirus pandemic has greatly reduced demand. Uh, the sort of optional uh, behavioral changes on the, the consumer side have been made worse by mandatory travel restrictions in a number of jurisdictions. Uh, and, you know, with, with capacity being cut on a year-over-year -year basis sometimes in the, in the immediate wake of the, uh, the sort of global outbreak in March, uh, you know, on the magnitude of 90-95%. And we'll get into a little bit later how some demand is, is maybe coming back. We will also discuss the airline's responses, expense reductions, sort of benefited from certain variable costs that have gone down with the lower number of flights. We'll also get into fixed costs, what companies are doing particularly with regard to their fleet and employees also getting rid of discretionary non-aircraft CapEx, uh, certain other marketing expenses. Uh, and then uh, also the just the you know, sheer magnitude of new debt and equity issuance from both public and private markets and government sources. Uh, there have been some restructurings to date. Again, we'll sort of we'll focus on large U.S. carriers today. Uh, filings so far have been 
either uh, some smaller scale or maybe charter operations in the U.S., Raven Air, Superior Air Charter come to mind, or situations where there are greater governmental travel restric restrictions. We've seen a number of large Latin American airlines, including Avianca, uh, Latin Airlines file. Uh, again, a, another dynamic where there's a, a lack of government funding. Uh, but we'll focus on the U.S. and sort of, you know, with the, the goal in mind of how do these airlines keep liquidity problems from hopefully transforming into solvency problems. And with that, I'll Thanks, hand it Sean. over to Krishan. Thanks, Krishan. Thanks, Sean. Um, yeah, so for the purposes of discussing operating and financial trends in this presentation, we're primarily going to focus on American Airlines, United Airlines, and Delta Airlines, um, all of which recently reported their second quarter earnings results. Um, as a result of the, the lockdowns and the, the coronavirus pandemic, um, travel restrictions as a result, uh, these airlines have seen their revenue drop by nearly 90% year-over-year in the second quarter. Um, and to account for the lower demand, airlines cut capacity by around 80% or more in some cases. Um, but during the quarter, they did you know, see some load factor trends improving sequentially each month. And just as a reference point, when we talk about capacity, we're referring to available seat miles, um, which represents one seat flown one mile. And when we talk about load factor, um, that's the percentage of available seats filled by revenue-paying passengers. Um, and support to note that, you know, despite the significant capacity reductions to account for lower demand, um, salary costs uh, during the second quarter were only down about 20 to 30% year over year, which kind of highlights the, the fixed nature of the cost base, um, which, which we'll get into a little later. Um, Moving along to some, some capacity trends that we saw in second quarter, um, you know, United's capacity was down 88% year over year um, in second quarter. Um, for Q3, they initially guided to a 60% year over year decline, but revised that guidance to be down 65% year over year. Um, and that's because uh, expectations for July and August and September have been tempered um, by increasing coronavirus cases and, and corresponding quarantine measures. Um, and there's a table here that shows monthly capacity and load factor trends in Q2, how much generally trended up. And we can see that domestic capacity and load factor outpaced international uh, in May and June. And it's likely that those trends will continue in the near future. Um, American. Uh, on the other hand, expect system capacity to be down 60% um, year over year compared with the 76% decline in the second quarter. And that's, you know, 60% number is roughly similar to, to Delta's guidance uh, for Q3. Um, and the key takeaway here is that United and Delta reduced their capacity in the second quarter uh, more than American. And we're going to see how that, that impacted cash burn uh, on the next slide here. So with the, the onset of the coronavirus pandemic uh, in the U.S., these airlines were burning about $100 million or more per day. And that was primarily driven by the extremely low uh, demand or low fa load factor, um, combined with the fact that the airlines were operating at or near full capacity for a short period of time. 
Um, and in addition to that, you know, negative or net bookings were negative um, at the very beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, um, where refunds were outpacing new bookings. And as an example, Americans said uh, in a July 2nd 8K that it saw about 11 million in cash receipts in April, and that's compared with 4.2 billion in April in 2019. So a huge difference there. Um, but airlines have been able to get their cash burned down from that $100 million peak to you know, as low as you know, $30 million or lower um, by the end of the second quarter. And as a result, you know, their cost bases have been able to be cut by about 40 to 50%. Um, and the reason for that is you know, part of it is, is the very variable costs um, coming out of the, the structure as, as revenue declined. And um, you know, an example of that is fuel costs, um, but also you know, increased revenue um, sequentially throughout the second quarter um, helped reduce the burn. And another big boom um, has been employees taking voluntary unpaid leaves of absence. Um, that those costs have kind of just come directly out of the P&L there. Um, and, and airlines have worked to, to implement other cost-saving actions related to offering employees early, early retirement, early voluntary departure packages, um, reducing fleet um, and cutting non-essential capbacks. Um, and it's important to, I guess an important point here is that United said on its recent earnings call that it could get cash burned down to break even, uh, but that would be in an environment uh, where demand and capacity are down around 50% and it's year over year and it's not sure when, when that might occur. Um, and another consideration when we talk about cash burn in general is that each airline has a slightly different definition of cash burn. Um, so it's not necessarily a direct apples to apples, uh, but you know, it is, it does appear that American has been burning slightly more cash than United and Delta. And part of that, you know, might be driven by the fact that American has more employees and as a result, you know, higher employee related costs. And it also leases a greater portion of its fleet than uh, United and Delta. That's another factor there. Um, so as a result of this uh, high cash burn, uh, the airlines have been raising a lot of liquidity. Um, they've done it through the capital markets, primarily in the form of secured debt, but they've also been able to raise a little unsecured debt and, and equity as well. Um, they've also received over $5 billion from the government through the payroll support program. About 90% of those proceeds were received um, by the end of June with the remaining 10% to be received at the end of July. Uh, and additionally, each of these three airlines has signed a non-binding letter for secured loans under the CARES Act from the Treasury Department um, for amounts you know, exceeding you know, $4.5 billion. Um, when we talk about the runway that's, that's left, um, from a liquidity standpoint, the credit docs for certain of the um, facilities that each of the airlines has requires minimum liquidity of $2 billion. But airlines have mentioned in the past that they won't necessarily let liquidity drop that low. Uh, Delta said in a March 10th call that it wanted to maintain liquidity of $5 billion uh, throughout the year, although circumstances have, have changed significantly from then. 
Um, but if we were to assume a hypothetical minimum liquidity of around $4 billion and use the, you know, exit Q2 or guided Q3 daily cash burn rate, uh, United would have around 14 months of, of liquidity until it hit that $4 billion threshold, while United and Delta wouldn't hit that threshold until Q2 of 2022. Um, and when we talk about American here, it's important to note that um, the trough cash burn in Q2 was, was indicated at around $30 million per day, but its Q3 guidance, um, or its Q3 liquidity guidance implies a $40 million daily cash burn. Um, and if we were to use that $40 million number instead of $30 million, um, that would leave American about 10 and a half months until it hit you know, $4 billion liquidity threshold. And all of this uh, liquidity runway scenarios kind of assume that the airlines don't raise you know, additional debt other than what they've said um, they would. Um, and when we talk about debt um, and, and just look at the, the capital structures for these airlines at a high level, um, they constitute, you know, they include uh, aircraft financing in the form of EETCs or enhanced uh, equipment trust certificates um, and equipment notes. And we'll, we'll touch on those a, a little later in the presentation. Um, and, and in addition to, you know, traditional secured and unsecured debt, um, they also have you know, revenue bonds related to construction projects at airports that they um, that they conduct. Uh, other items to consider in the capital structure are operating leases um, and also pension liabilities are a factor for these airlines. Well, uh, in terms of upcoming maturities, um, excluding any aircraft financing debt, uh, United has about three billion dollars due within the next 12 months as we can see in the table in the upper right here. Um, and Delta has about $4 billion due over the next 12 months. Interestingly, United, or, sorry, interestingly, American doesn't have any corporate debt maturing until 2022. And uh, some of these, these airlines were kind of able to push out some of their revolver term loan maturities you know, a couple years um, uh, yeah, early on in the, the onset of this this pandemic. Um, in terms of unencumbered assets, which has been a um, primary, the primary way for, for companies to raise uh, new debt in the, in the capital markets, uh, if we look you know, at unencumbered assets, excluding loyalty programs, American has about $3.8 billion, uh, United has about $9 billion, and Delta has about 6 to $7 billion. Uh, United's $9 billion amount, which they said on the earnings call, um, yesterday excludes assets that it's set aside to be pledged to the CARES Act term loan. Um, that again could be you know, worth around or to total around four to four point six billion. Um, regarding the loyalty program, United pledged substantially all of its assets um, to raise six point eight billion dollars of debt you know, a few weeks ago. Uh, American plans to pledge a significant portion of its loyalty program to secure its CARES Act term loan. Um, and, you know, Delta hasn't indicated whether it's going to, you know, participate or, or go through with the, accepting the CARES Act term loan as well. They're not yet, but, you know, it's possible that they do. Um, 
Also worth noting that the the value of the airline brands themselves, uh, a site called Brand Finance estimated the value of these airlines to be around eight to nine billion dollars in an April publication. Um, and uh, you know, Peter will transition now to Peter talking a little more, bit more about the debt um, for these airlines. Thanks, Prashant. Um so uh, American, Delta, and United each have a number of different pieces of uh, secured debt. They also have some unsecured debt, but we're going to focus uh, mostly on uh, secured debt given uh, the environment we're in. Um, as a general rule, uh, each piece of the secured debt essentially only puts restrictions on the company's ability to incur additional debt secured by uh, whatever collateral is securing that piece of debt. Um, no, none of the secured debt uh, restricts the companies from incurring additional secured debt secured by non-collateral. So um, each individual uh, debt document uh, provides extreme flexibility, uh, but given these companies have incurred a significant amount of secured debt uh, secured by a bunch of their assets, um, while each piece uh, provides flexibility uh, as a whole, they're getting more and more limited in what they are able to do. Um, generally, the pools of, uh, of assets that uh, these companies have been pledging are uh, gates, slots, and routes, uh, aircraft, spare parts, and spare engines. Um, sometimes uh, those, those two uh, are combined as, as one collateral package. Uh, sometimes, uh, in, in United's case, they're split. Um, there are also, they also obviously have a loyalty programs. And as Prashan mentioned, um, they're... Uh, some of these, most of these companies have entered, have issued um, uh, enhanced uh, equipment trust certificates, which are securitized debt backed by a number of their aircraft. Um, like Hertz's securitization program with its rental vehicles, uh, this just provides these companies with um, a source of uh, cheaper liquidity. Uh, but the, so, uh, you know, we get a lot of questions every day about, you know, how much uh, additional secure debt can each of these companies incur. Uh, the key to understanding that um, is figuring out how much, uh, what unencumbered assets they have, uh, they have available. Uh, as Krishan had mentioned, um, uh, American this morning announced that uh, it has about $4 billion of unencumbered assets. Uh, Delta has between 6 and $7 billion, and United has $9 billion. All of that can, uh, again, there are no restrictions on the companies using all of that, uh, all of their unencumbered assets to incur additional secured debt. Uh, so then I'm just going to briefly go over, um, you know, each piece of the secured debt and, you know, just very high level as to, you know, what they allow, what the requirements are in terms of maintenance covenants, and uh, how much more additional carry debt these companies can incur. Um, as you can see with American Airlines, they have already pledged their slots, routes, and gates. Um, both for uh, going from the U.S. to South America and U.S. to the European Union. They've also pledged their spare parts. Um, they also have pledged the slots for, DC, uh, for um, Reagan and LaGuardia, and they have, they, have, um, they have committed to pledging their domestic loyalty, uh, domestic loyalty program to secure the CARES Act. Um, each of the pieces of debt that are currently in existence um, require that the companies maintain $2 billion of liquidity um, and that they maintain a 1.6 times collateral coverage ratio. Notably, that only restricts, uh, that only tests the companies, um, the value of the collateral versus the um, outstanding first lien debt. So 
most of these debt documents do not restrict the companies from incurring junior lien debt. In terms of uh, value leakage, well, it, it seems like it, it's, it's not really uh, the utmost importance right now and, and not really on investors' minds. Um, especially in Americans, uh, Americans that documents, the company has essentially unlimited ability to transfer assets to unrestricted subs, um, to, to pay dividends, to buy back equity. Of course, the CARES Act loans that all of these companies have received will restrict them from paying dividends and buying back equity until September 30th. But um, once those restrictions go away, um, all three of these companies um, will be essentially uh, able to, to pay you know, un unlimited dividends, buy back equity, uh, make investments, transfer assets, unrestricted subs. Again, the collateral coverage ratios are probably going to be the limiting what they can transfer uh, given uh, th those are maintenance covenants, and they'll need to meet them on a quarterly basis. Now, unlike uh, Delta and United, American Airlines has incurred um, some uh, second lien debt as well. Uh, recently, the company issued $2.5 billion of secured notes due 2025. Um, it was, uh, those notes were secured on a first lien basis uh, by certain slots, routes, and gates, uh, and the praise value for those uh, assets was $7.45 billion dollars. But the notes were also secured on a second lien basis by the slots, routes, and gates uh, between the U.S. and the European Union. Um, those, those assets were valued at uh, about $6.5 billion. Um, just like uh, Americans' other debt documents, um, these secured notes provided um, a significant amount of flexibility. But unlike the bank debt, uh, the notes do not include a maintenance covenant. But um, when the company needs to deliver an appraisal certificate, which it needs to do um, on a semi-regular basis, if it's unable to show that it can meet a 1.6 times collateral coverage test, uh, the coupon for the notes will uh, step up by 2%. Also this morning, uh, I, had my, I had my slides already, and then American announced this morning that it's going to be uh, issuing another $1 billion of secured notes. Um, these will be secured on a first lien basis by some of the company's IP, uh, including the, the American Airlines and the AA.com trademarks, um, and by a second lien basis by uh, the slots at LaGuardia and Reagan. Uh, according to the filings, the company will be able to incur $4 billion of additional parry debt secured by those assets, and um, like all of its other documents, uh, unlimited amount of junior lien debt. Uh, so for Delta, uh, as you'll see, you know, uh, pretty much, uh, you know, very similar. It, it, it does not have, um, you know, it, it has, it's kind of split up some of its routes and slots. Um, it has debt that's backed by uh, aircraft. Um, it does not have any debt currently that is, um, that is secured by spare parts, spare engines, or its loyalty program. So it does have some flexibility uh, there. And um, it's seeming that the loyalty programs are, are some of these companies' most valuable assets. So um, Delta, it would not be surprising to see Delta, if they need to raise liquidity, uh, you know, use their loyalty program uh, as collateral. But again, just like all the other, um, just like American Airlines, the company also needs to meet uh, 1.6 times collateral coverage ratios. Uh, it needs to uh, meet $2 billion liquidity. Um, some of these pieces of debt uh, do allow additional parry debt, um, but they, you know, not only do they provide a, an, a ceiling on how much parry debt they can incur, but again, the company will need to meet a collateral coverage ratio. 
Well, interestingly, uh, the company just amended uh, it, its revolving uh, facility, which had been unsecured, and now it is secured, and, uh, and one of its two term loan facilities. One of the amendments um, in, in, in these documents added a $25 million cap on dividends until September 30th, 2021. Uh, again, uh, um, the, the CARES Act um, limitations on dividends rolls off to September 30th of this year, but under these new amendments, Delta will have one more year of being unable to pay any dividends. After those restrictions roll off, none of Delta's documents include any restrictions on restricted payments, investments, or prepayments of debt. Uh, and finally, uh, United, as you can see, United has really um, kind of split up all of its assets. It has one facility backed by slots, routes, and gates, one by aircraft, one by spare parts, one by spare engines, and its recent $6.8 billion financing uh, backed by its loyalty program. Um, here, unlike the other, unlike Delta and American, while well, it has to meet a 1.6 times collateral coverage test under two pieces of debt, uh, under another one, it, the spare parts uh, facility, it's, it's a two times collateral coverage ratio, and the spare engines, uh, a 1.4 times uh, collateral coverage ratio. Still $2, uh, $2 billion liquidity requirement, um, still um, no restrictions on junior lien debt, and um, effectively unfettered ability to pay dividends, uh, buy back equity, and, uh, and make investments, uh, obviously once the CARES Act uh, restrictions roll off. And then one other uh, interesting implication of the CARES Act financing that all these companies received is that um, a significant chunk of those relief funds were uh, provided in the form of grants. And in return for the grants, the company issued warrants. Um, in American and United debt documents, because Delta you know, does not have any restrictions on uh, restricted payments, so uh, this does not apply to them. But in American and United, they have a very typical 50% of CNI-based builder basket um, that also builds by uh, the proceeds of any equity issuances uh, that, it, uh, that it has made um, in Americans' case since June 30th, 2013, in United since May 7th, 2013. Uh, now, what the grants alone would not have uh, would not have affected the builder basket capacity. However, the giving of warrants actually converts the, the, the grant effectively into an equity issuance. And so the billions of dollars in grants that American and, uh, and United have received will actually, or arguably, will build capacity in the builder basket. Now, importantly, obviously, the, the, the companies cannot use the funds, uh, the grants, to actually pay the dividend. But it, the way the builder basket works and it just starts accumulating capacity. So um, yeah, let's say they receive $4 billion of grants. The builder basket will then provide the company with an additional $4 billion of capacity, which it can fund with, uh, with other you know, proceeds of other debt or you know, um, cash flow from operations. Um, but so while they can't use the, 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 the proceeds from the grants alone to, to fund these additional dividends, uh, it will build capacity. Of course, it's, it's not really a significant issue given that uh, these companies have um, essentially unfettered ability to pay dividends anyway, but it's an interesting unintended consequence of the, uh, of the requirements that these companies had to issue warrants in return for the grants. Um, I'm now going to turn it over to Kevin to talk about the uh, uh, various bankruptcy implications. Thank you, Peter. Uh, just one clarification before I begin. 
um, as many uh, audience members have pointed out, the ability to repurchase equity or pay dividends under the CARES Act, that's a limitation through September 30th, 2021, um, and not through September 30th, 2020. Um, just an important point. So what we'll, we'll do now is we'll move on to uh, some of the more unusual collateral packages here and how they would be influenced by a bankruptcy case and how bankruptcy lawyers out there are probably already trying to break them down and, and see what they can do. Um, the first slide you're looking at, it describes the basic structure of the loyalty program loan that United has taken out um, and that presumably would be similar to what American does. As you can see, it's a really complicated structure whereby funds are loaned to a financing vehicle, uh, which receives transfers of the program IP from the airline and the program entity, MPH. The financing entity then licenses the IP back to MPH in exchange for license payments, which would presumably be used to repay the loans via a control account. The loans are secured by the assets of MPH and the financing entity, which are basically the transferred IP and guaranteed by the airline. The proceeds can then be upstreamed to MPH and loaned to the airline via intercompany loans from MPH. MPH would repay the loan using its income from the sale of miles to the airline, which according to United is about 29% of revenue, and sales of miles to third parties such as credit card issuers, hotels, rental car companies, uh, which use the miles as rewards for customers, the other 71% of revenue. Now, the airline pays MPH one cent per mile plus an additional amount that guarantees MPH a 20% margin. The third parties pay two cents per mile. Um, the MPH in turn pays United one cent per mile when they are redeemed, giving it a 20% a guaranteed margin on airline miles and a 50% margin on miles sold to third parties. The contract between the airline and MPH governing these purchases and redemptions is set for 20 years. Third-party contracts are typically three to five years, and the credit card companies have contracts through 2029. As you can see, this complex structure is held together by a web of the kind of things bankruptcy lawyers salivate about, executory contracts, uh, such as the license agreements, sub-licenses, the 20-year purchase and redemption agreement, um, intercompany transfers, uh, purchases and redemptions of miles, intercompany loans, license payments, and IP transfers, that create a number of potential conflicts and complexities that can be exploited for leverage by various groups and their creditors in bankruptcy, as discussed on the next slide. So moving on to the next slide, um, here we discuss some of these issues. The most important thing to keep in mind here is that to the extent the lenders under the mileage program are different than the direct airline lenders, their interests will conflict at various points. The MPH lenders have an incentive to enhance the value of the MPH, while the airline lenders want to enhance the value of the airline. Um, and these intercompany relationships and these conflicts are held off by agreements and equity ownership that seem inviolable outside of bankruptcy, um, but will often be subject to second guessing in bankruptcy at the insistence of creditors or committees. For example, if the airline files, it could seek to renegotiate the 20-year mile purchase and redemption contract with MPH, which guarantees MPH's margin on, on airline mileage sales, um, and, and try to negotiate more money on redemptions. And the airline could also try to reject the IP sublicense, or even, if it really wanted to get very novel, create an entirely new loyalty program, which would leave MPH without an airline. Um, the, the arrangement is very profitable for MPH, according to United, about $1.8 billion in EBITDA for 2019, 
And whenever you see that kind of money coming out of the subsidiary, you have to think about the parent's creditors trying to recapture it. The airline could also dilute the value of miles by requiring more miles for travel. Um, if the MPH files, it could seek to recover loan proceeds upstream to the airline by intercompany loans or threaten to reject the IP sublicense or itself try to reject the 20-year contract to get a higher margin. The MPH could also seek to renegotiate the license from the financing entity, which may be priced uh, to reflect loan repayments rather than the value of the IP, or try to recharacterize the sale license back part of the structure as a secured financing, um, which could deprive the MPH lenders of collateral, the IP. Uh, the mileage program lenders could also seize cash coming into MPH via the control account, preventing redemptions and creating operational disturbances. All of these moves might violate covenants in the credit agreements, but if the companies file, there's little disincentive to committing these further breaches. Um, and these conflicts could also lead to increased costs in bankruptcy by requiring separate fiduciaries, advisors, and attorneys, or even creditors committees for each entity. Uh, just a quick note, competitors could also take advantage of the situation by deploying status matching as an incentive to get customers over to their airline, which would effectively make those customers' mileage holdings at, at MPH worthless and harming both the airline and MPH. Um, of course, all these moves would have very dangerous consequences for both airline and the mileage program, uh, but even if they don't happen, they will create leverage points in any bankruptcy, um, out-of-court restructuring, or even in future uh, efforts to raise additional capital. Now, moving on to the next slide, um, we'll talk about slots at gates and routes, which is something that generates a lot of interest. Um, the, the slide includes a, a quick definition of these assets, which are, are pretty much self-explanatory. The slots are especially notable and theoretically valuable, um, but only for three airports, and that's LaGuardia, JFK, and DCA, which are slot limited. Historically, SGRs were used for relatively small bank loans and for aircraft financing, um, though they're now being more widely used as collateral in, in the travel crash financing that we're talking about. The, there are two issues with the SDR, SGR. The main issue is that, that as collateral, though they can, interest in them can be perfected according to some prior bankruptcy decisions, there is regulatory overhang on them. Um, in other words, for example, the Department of Justice can seize or reallocate these to ensure competition at a particular airport in the event an airline leaves the airport or closes down. These assets also may not be able to be legally monetized for regulatory reasons. Um, the ability to sell slots and routes is uncertain, though in one recent UK case, the Monarch case, an appellate court in the UK approved the sale of, of these assets um, because the regulator had not yet terminated the airline certificate. So in the United States, it's still sort of an open issue. The second big problem, aside from these sort of regulatory and allocation issues, is that the value of these assets is highly intangible. Because there's no ready market, a decline in travel could greatly reduce their value. If airports and airplanes are empty, no one's going to pay for more access um, to get their airplanes into those airports. Now, this is uh, this slide, I'm not going to walk you through it, thank goodness, is just an example of an EETC financing structure. So we'll talk about aircraft financing now, and it's important to keep in mind these EETC structures because they're often used for the core fleet 
of an airline's uh, planes, and they're also often used on a rolling basis. So airlines will continue using the same structure to buy airplanes over years and years. This one's from a, an American filing in 2017, and they're all fairly similar. Um, we'll move on to the next slide to talk about the treatment of these kind of arrangements in bankruptcy. Um, the U.S. Bankruptcy Code does provide extra protection for lenders or lessors of aircraft to debtors. Um, under Section 1110 of the Code, the debtor essentially has a 60-day window free from paying rents on the planes, after which it must uh, surrender the aircraft or agree to surrender the aircraft unless it cures all defaults and agrees to pay all rent going forward, um, what we call cure and assure. The airline basically has, although this is not technically accurate, it's best to think of this as 60 days to assume the leases. Generally, the debtors will surrender some aircraft at the beginning of the case and negotiate extensions with lessors or lenders to buy more time to decide whether to keep other aircraft. Um, the difficulty in these negotiations often is that amending EETC documents can be difficult. Um, you have to get a high level of creditor consensus, and very often when the air, if the airline is unable to pay its debts and files for bankruptcy, the investment grade rating on the higher tranches of the EETC will be threatened, and IG holders will have to sell out to hedge funds at a discount who often um, will play a little, a little harder in terms of trying to get um, an agreement to put off assumption and may drive a harder bargain because, of course, their cost basis is lower. Another issue is that even if the 1110 period runs out and there is no cure and assure, the lenders may not want the aircraft back because they can't sell it in the market. Um, this gives debtors the opportunity to play lenders against each other they will often conduct a sort of Dutch auction where they'll say we're only going to keep 10777s and 20A320s. Which one of you guys want us to continue leasing yours? And we'll talk about renegotiation, and there's effectively a, a bid to the bottom for assumption. Um, airlines may also decide to simply go, go what we call naked, and go past the period and, and essentially dare the lessors to repossess the aircraft even though they're not paying rent. And again, if, if the market for uh, used aircraft is soft, which it probably is right now, that's uh, going to be something that the debtors can try to do. Um, the ETCs, of course, often have extra protection in the form of a liquidity provider that will at least cover interest, interest payments for the, the maximum time anticipated to resell a plane, usually about 18 months, um, could be longer now, um, we'll see. Um, for non-U.S. carriers filing foreign cases, and I know we're focusing on U.S. here, there is an alternative, uh, alternative A of the Cape Town Protocol, which applies to aircraft leases with international aspects. This has a similar provision to 1110 with a 30-day option period and no extensions allowed though courts have completely disregarded that provision in some Chapter 15 and local bankruptcy cases. The U.S. has opted out of Alternative A, so 1110 still governs in cases filed under Chapter 11, and there's very little case law on the Cape Town Protocol in Chapter 11 cases. Um, generally, in cases to date, aircraft finance issues have been secondary. Um, the aircraft finance has been resolved rather amicably, but this, of course, may change due to the current depressed marketplace for used planes. We'll see if 
some of these debtors are willing to try get, to go naked with planes and, and dare lessors to repossess planes they maybe can't sell. Moving on to the next slide. Now, here's, an, here's a unique issue that's come up recently in airlines cases that's worth discussion. Um, the big U.S. airlines obviously have expansive international operations, I think American most of all. And if they file, they may not have the ability to prevent interruptions in those operations by unpaid foreign creditors, even though the automatic stay of the U.S. bankruptcy code theoretically applies worldwide um, and to the debtor's assets wherever they're located. The problem is that stay violations are generally enforced by monetary contempt sanctions, and many international creditors may not have U.S. assets for collection of those sanctions, so they don't care about defying the U.S. stay. The issue arose recently in the Avianca Chapter 11, where an Ecuadorian service provider refused to provide additional services, terminated its agreement with the debtors, and threatened to seize Ecuadorian bank accounts. Um, the debtors indicated that the creditor services and the accounts were crucial in restarting Ecuadorian operations and sued the Ecuadorian entity and its Florida parent in bankruptcy court. The debtor warned that failure to sanction the Florida entity for its affiliate in Ecuador's behavior would send a strong signal to foreign airline creditors that the stay would not apply to them, but the court denied the debtor's immediate relief against the Florida entity because the Florida entity had no relationship with the debtors. They simply said, well, we're not the Ecuadorian entity. We're not doing anything, um, and we don't have total control over that entity. Uh, the Ecuadorian entity, of course, did not show up. Um, unrestrained cessation of services and collection efforts by foreign creditors in this way could, as the debtors now the Anka warned, have serious effects on an airline's inter international operations. Paying all of these creditors in full at the beginning of the case, which some Chapter 11 debtors do, could, however, be prohibitively expensive um, and require a sizable additional DIP financing for, uh, for these entities. Um, well, th thanks for listening to me. Now I'm going to turn it over to Krishan for a discussion of some additional bankruptcy and employment issues. Thanks, Kevin. Um, so switching back to or switching to employee costs now, uh, by accepting the PSP proceeds, the airlines agreed not to involuntarily terminate or furlough employees through September 30th. Um, and as a result, they've worked to offer early retirement packages, voluntary departure packages um, to incentivize um, certain employees to, to leave. Um, and a, a key driver of, of employee cost savings has been those initiatives as well as employees voluntarily taking unpaid, unpaid leaves of absence. Um, and those have been anywhere from you know, a few weeks to up to 12 months. Um, and again, that's been a pretty big boon for, for the airlines in terms of, of lowering their cash burn um, during this time. Um, additionally, uh, American and United have recently come out and issued board notices uh, to employees for potential layoffs or for lows starting October 1st and those would be involuntary. Um, and as you can see in the chart, um, here's this, that is, you know, these notices represent a significant portion of the um, employee base, you know, anywhere from, from 20 to 30, between 20 and 40%, so um, pretty sizable numbers. Uh, again, all these more notices don't necessarily have to be uh, result in uh, terminations or furloughs. Um, but it's worth noting the, the amount or, or size of them. Uh, another step airlines are taking 
to reduce employee costs is, is working with labor unions to reduce the guaranteed minimum pay requirements uh, for employees under CBAs. Um, and as we can see in the table here, uh, American and United, um, their employee base, about 80, over 80% 80 of their employees are under CBAs. Um, so this is a big, um, uh, I guess, negotiation to, to try to um, reduce costs under the CBAs. And now I'll pass it over to Sean to um, elaborate more on this. Thanks for Sean. Yeah, I'll just kind of note generally in prior airline bankruptcies, labor negotiations have been a key dynamic. As Krishan noted, the, the debtors are already speaking with those constituencies in light of the coronavirus. Uh, the debtors sort of uh, naturally already came up on the, quote, amendable period under certain of their uh, collective bargaining agreements and, and ancillary agreements with uh, the pilots, the Allied Pilots Association and the Association of Professional Flight Attendants represent uh, just under 40,000 employees. So it's sort of a, a natural natural time to negotiate anyway. Uh, I, would, I would posit one distinction maybe between the last decade or so, um, decade thinking from the early 2000s to Americans filing in 2011, Maybe a difference this time around is, is before the, you know, each of these companies were able to take out a significant chunk of sort of legacy uh, ben benefits, also pensions, different labor costs. Americans for defined benefit plans have been frozen since 2012. So I, you know, just given the amount of the demand shock from coronavirus and, and people, you know, sort of trying to figure out, well, how do we you know, reduce operations or, or, you know, what is what are our future views on how demand returns? I think this, you know, if there are, to the extent there are filings this time around, the discussion may be more about, uh, you know, overall staffing levels as opposed to compensation. But then again, it's sort of, a bankruptcy is always a, a natural time to seek uh, whatever cost savings you can get. Um, so I'll just, I'll, you know, sort of end on that point by saying, you know, companies, to the extent uh, you get closer to a bankruptcy scenario, they can they can sort of gain a little bit of negotiating leverage just by mentioning the sections 1113, 1114 of the bankruptcy code that allow them to modify uh, CBAs and, and retiree benefits. Uh, and then final point, just that the CARES Act allows a deferral of the minimum required pension contributions for single employer defined benefit plans in 2020. And American is, has come right out in Q1. They said, yes, we expect to defer our $196 million minimum required contribution uh, until January 1, 2021. The Q filed this morning adds dot, dot, dot. We intend to pay that on December 31, 2020. So well, well done. Uh, maximize that that time. And that, as if it wasn't enough, uh, concludes the slide portion of our presentation. Please get in any last-minute questions as we will now switch over to the Q&A portion of the webinar. And a reminder, a replay of today's presentation will be available on the Reorg Media page within 24 hours. So let's see what questions have come in 
so far. Uh, first, Kevin, a couple questions here on slots. Uh, do you guys have a view on how these slots, gates, and routes collateral across the industry, not specific to any airline, would hold up upon a filing? The SGR collateral cannot be perfected, so it seems those creditors are wearing significant risk of being treated as unsecured. Yeah, the, the slots, gates, and routes collateral can be perfected in the sense that you can file a financing statement in the United States or <clears throat> wherever um, wherever they, these need to be perfected. The problem with them is really monetizing them and trying to, if you're a secured creditor who, who that's your collateral, trying to liquidate them and pay off your debt. And, and again, there are significant regulatory um, and practical challenges to that regulatory in the sense that they are very controlled by governmental entities and practical and that they may be absolutely worthless. Great, thanks. Next one is for Peter. Peter, we have a question. What is the potential for airlines to raise money, improve liquidity by using their frequent flyer miles as collateral for example, recent United Airlines raising money uh, using frequent flyers, frequent flyer miles. None of these companies have any restrictions on incurring additional secured debt on non-collateral assets. So um, frequent flyer miles, loyalty programs, anything can be used uh, to as collateral. Uh, you know, in Delta's case, they have not pledged any of their loyalty programs, any IP, um, and so, you know, they have, uh, there, there are no restrictions on, on the company using any of those assets to incur additional secured debt. Um, United, obviously, it looks like they've kind of fully tapped out um, their loyalty program. Um, and with American, um, they, have, they have said that they plan to use their domestic loyalty program to secure the $4.75 billion uh, CARES Act secured loan that they're going to get. They, of course, have not done it yet. Um, and, and, and this morning, you know, they, they said they were going to use some of their IP. Um, but again, to the extent um, it is unencumbered, um, it, it's fair game for, the, for any of these companies to use as collateral for additional secured financing. Uh, Kevin, back to you. Got a couple EETC-related questions. First up, as airlines are attempting to rationalize their fleet, can they terminate an EETC without a default? Can they default under the EETC without triggering a bankruptcy? Yeah, thanks, Sean. And the answer to that is absolutely. On the EETC, like any other funding program, the debtors can simply say, we're not going to continue paying under the program, and it wouldn't necessarily uh, trigger a bankruptcy. The issue for airlines and the reason that EETC programs are often treated uh, at the at the head of the line in terms of aircraft financing in these cases, is that the EETC is sort of a credit line. As I explained, airlines will use one EETC program to continue buying planes over years, and it allows them access to essentially investment-grade credit at the top tranches. So they're very reluctant to let go of an EETC facility and not do whatever it takes to have it, both because they would lose the planes that they have under the facility now, again, which are often the core fleet of, uh, that, they, that they're using, but also because they would lose availability to relatively cheap credit 
that results from the ETC structure. And, and one of the reasons, and I see there's another question, so I'll just jump on it. One of the reasons the EETC structure is relatively uh, inexpensive for airlines is, is, of course, the protections of 1110B, the, the idea that the airlines need to, in bankruptcy, quickly assume their obligations. But one of the other issues is the liquidity provider. And the way this works is that um, in most EETC financings, a, a third party will agree to put up sufficient funds to pay for 18 months of interest on the EETC loans. Um, and, and they'll do that with someone who has very strong credit rating so that they can get an investment grade credit rating at the top tranches. Um, it's effectively a letter of credit um, or, or a surety bond, some third-party financing that can be drawn on even if the debtor files for bankruptcy. Since it's not an obligation of the debtor, it's not subject to the automatic stay and all those restrictions. Um, the 18-month figure is just generally the length of the liquidity program because airline financiers and, and the people who do these and churn these out um, and have been for 20 years, they generally view that 18 months as the longest possible period to sell the plane. So the idea is you get paid your interest while you're holding onto that plane and it gets parked up in the desert. Um, and when you sell it, you'll get the, the principal back at that point. Again, this is all dependent on the value of these airplanes, of used airplanes in the market. And if everything continues as depressed as it is, presumably there's not going to be a whole lot of people out there buying these used airplanes. Great. Thank you, Kevin, uh, for taking all of those in conjunction. Next question is for Krishan. Sean, uh, we have someone asking, what is your outlook for credit post-COVID given the massive increase in debt during the crisis? Yeah, so um, I think it's important to note that in terms of, of COVID and, and demand, um, it, the airlines have mentioned that they, you know, they, they probably don't see demand returning to 2019 levels until maybe 2022 or, or after that. Um, yeah, so in that interim period, um, it m might take a while for airlines to to get cash flow positive in this current um, operating environment. Um, and yeah, when you when you look at the debt um, in a more normalized um, time, I guess um, at the beginning of the year, uh, these airlines had about six to seven billion of liquidity. Um, their, their break-even cash flow was probably at a load factor of maybe operating full capacity in the 70 percentile, um, around their 70 to 80 percent. Um, and so when we see much lower load factors, you have to re they've been reducing capacity accordingly. Um, and based on that six to seven billion dollar liquidity and forecast of cash burn, you know, United Delta have raised you know maybe nine billion or more in debt. Uh, Americans raised. Yeah, another maybe five billion or so in debt, and maybe that that you know, looking at the, the cost of that debt, you're probably adding five hundred million dollars uh, of interest expense annually. Um, the, the credit picture um, extremely uncertain, but a lot of it I think demands on demand in the near future. Um, where I would say they are maybe a little more, um, I guess, averse um, uh, is with the maturity wall. So it seems like the airlines have been able to at least decently push out the corporate debt maturities 
to more of the 2023 to 2025 window um, and a little beyond. So there isn't really, from a maturity wall perspective, at least in the next couple of years, there isn't anything extremely urgent, I would say, um, on the corporate debt side. Um, but yeah, operationally, with the increased interest um, and managing capacity in this lower demand environment is, is going to be a challenge. Thanks, Krishan. Uh, that was a was a great look ahead. Uh, we'll we'll end there. Thanks, and thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, all of our podcasts are on the Reorg.com media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And as always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe. <laughs>